0: Father, we welcome, we continue to welcome your spirit in here. We welcome your spirit in the homes or offices of everybody who's watching online right now. And we invite you to come and just say whatever it is you want to say. Lord, because we, we are not simply declaring who you are, but in declaring who you are, we are also changed. And we invite you to come change us to make us like you in the ways that you have designed us to be. So we open up our hearts and we say, because we know who you are, we trust you. And we trust you to do and say, not what limits us, but what sets us free to be who you called us to be. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. Well, good morning, everybody. We, we get to close up uh, this series called Getting Back to the Why today, um, where the last several weeks we've looked at what is God's purpose, His why for our lives individually, and then we've been applying that to our church, to our work, to our friendships, to our families. And the more we've been in this series, the reason why we've done this series is because purpose really matters. And that's never been more obvious to me since having kids. Now, many of you know, Shelby and I have three young kids between the ages of four and seven. And one of the joys of parenting is being able to watch them grow up and figure out how the world works. But you know how it is. When we're learning how things work, we don't always get the purpose behind things. And I'm realizing, well, that kind of matters. Sometimes it doesn't matter all that much, though, right? You know, if my kids turn kitchen pots and pans into helmets and shields. It's just fun, right? No big deal. Sometimes it matters a little bit more. Not too long ago, one of my daughters thought a bottle of perfume was actually hair detangler spray. And she used a lot of it. As a result, her hair was still tangly, but she smelled fantastic. Right? But again, not a huge deal. Sometimes it really matters. (laughs) Purpose really matters. One of the things my kids love to do is draw and color pictures and then hang them up throughout the house. And normally, we love to encourage this kind of creativity, and they take scotch tape and stick it to the walls wherever they go. Well, one week, their whole two-minute-long search for tape didn't come through, and so they settled for glue instead. Trading one sticky thing for another, purple glue became the new wall adhesive of choice. Now, to be fair, the glue bottle does not say, do not use on walls. Maybe the creator didn't think that was necessary. (laughs) But it did say, disappearing purple. But we have now learned as a family that disappearing purple, so it's supposed to become clear after it dries, only applies to paper, not walls. Purpose sometimes really matters, doesn't it? And in what we're talking about today, purpose especially matters. On this Valentine's Day, we're talking about God's purpose, His why behind marriage. Marriage gets a bad rap in our society today. It gets a bad rap. But I want to make a point today that the reason why marriage often gets a bad rap in our society is not because there's something wrong with marriage. Instead, I'm going to explain how our society at large has misunderstood the purpose behind marriage. And as a result, it's not been cute, but it's been quite damaging. And then we're going to look together to say, okay, why did God create marriage? Because we see that the Bible is serious, brutally realistic about marriage, while also painting a glorious vision for it. And then last, in our brief time together, after after looking over the purpose of marriage, we're going to reflect on what does this practically mean, not just for those who are married or engaged here, but also for those who are not married. What does all of this mean for us? But as we dive in, before we do, actually, I want to plant a couple sets of verses in our minds that we'll then unpack here in a little bit. But I'm going to start. Just Genesis chapter 2, verse 24-25, where marriage was first created. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, hold that in your mind. Now let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now I'm going to pray. I invite you to bow your head as I lead us in prayer. Father, I give this time to you. I know that our congregation is made up of of all types of people from all types of experience with marriage. Some in here are not married. Some are. Some have been. Some are experiencing a a healthy marriage. Some are experiencing a lot of pain. Some had a devastating marriage on their lives. Some really want to be married. But in all of these scenarios, Lord, I pray, because I know that your Spirit has the ability to take what I can say in just a matter of 30 minutes and apply it in unique ways to each of our lives in ways that not only challenge but also comfort our hearts. As your truth is exposed and as, you are, as who you are and your purpose for marriage is revealed, God, I pray that it will work in a convicting but also healing way. Open our hearts to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. So... After my kids put purple glue on our walls, if I said, all right, well, that's clearly the glue's fault, what would you say? Uh, Kirk. (laughs) Um, The glue was never intended to go on the walls. Exactly. And when we expect marriage to be something it was never designed to be, it's not marriage's fault. So there's prepping for this message. I was doing a fair amount of research and I came across several surveys that at first were very encouraging because I saw that, hey, the divorce rate in our country is down. But when I started digging into that a bit more and trying to understand why, I realized one of the reasons why the divorce rate down is because the number of people getting married in our country is at an all-time low. In the past decade, less American adults have gotten married than ever. Why is that? And I know the answer to that is is complicated, right? There's a lot of factors to that. But it is fair to say that the institution of marriage has faced more criticism in the last decade than possibly ever. And when we look at, try to understand, what is our how does our society understand the purpose of marriage? I'm going to lay out two different ones for us today. But the first one, is a growing view. It's not the most popular, but it's a growing view that the purpose of marriage is to be a social contract designed to repress our freedom. Clearly, this is a negative view. <laughs> it's a negative view. But, but you've probably heard statements like marriage complicates love and stifles passion. Or marriage is a great institution if you want to be institutionalized. Right? You may have even heard some people say that marriage is psychologically harmful. Because we as human beings weren't designed to be with just one person. Now I wish I had time to dive into the actual psychology and science of all that to show how bogus that actually is. But I do want to say that it's important for us to understand that underneath this view, this purpose of marriage, is an assumption as to our highest purpose of hum- as human beings, that underneath oftentimes this view of marriage is the assumption that our highest purpose in life as individuals is to discover happiness, and that we will find happiness when I am free to follow my desires. This is what we call a hyper individualistic view that prioritizes my personal desires over any commitment to another human being or to an institution. So, the reasoning, the reasoning goes, because marriage binds me to one person, it limits my ability to follow my desires whenever I want, and therefore it gets in the way of my happiness, and therefore it gets in the way of my life purpose. You guys tracking with me? Tracking with me? Okay. Therefore, marriage is dismissed because it limits my personal freedom. Now, you've probably heard that view before. Like I said, it is growing in our secular society. But I still don't think it's the most popular view. I still think it's a reaction to what is the most popular view of marriage in our nation. Which is the most common view today, is that the purpose of marriage is to fulfill me. It's getting quiet in here, that's okay. In other words... Marriage, when I'm finally married, it will finally fix my loneliness, my emptiness, my lack of purpose, my need for sex. This is often called, or I call it, the save me purpose of marriage. If you don't think it's a reality, realize this is often paired with this idea of a soulmate. That you and I, we all have this one person out there who will finally complete us, who will make us whole. That when we marry our soulmate, that it'll be such a natural fit, that loving him or her will just be easy. And then we watch these romance movies or look at these picture-perfect couples on social media, and the narrative builds in our mind that the real struggle in life is to find that one person. And when we finally find that one person, we will ride off in the sunset toward heaven on earth. Now, I don't mean to ruin everyone's Valentine movie night tonight. (laughs) Because I know in a pandemic, that's exactly how we spend Valentine's Day. But we have to expose the underlying message that's underneath so much of what is called love in our society. That when I find my person, that they will finally save me, redeem me from my loneliness, my emptiness, my need for sex. You name whatever it is. And while this whole view of soulmate sounds romantic it's quite damaging when we stop to think about it if i expect my spouse to fulfill me i am placing impossible expectations on him or her if i'm entering my marriage expecting my spouse to just know my needs before i say it to support my goals to fulfill me intellectually, emotionally, sexually. That's a lot of pressure on a person. And not to mention, if they're really my soulmate, then they'll just accept me the way that I am and never try to change me. Yeah, I heard married people laughing. <laughs> but this, you know, this mindset sets us up for some tough days. And some tough arguments. Because... We come to realize that only Jesus can fulfill us, can complete us. But when I have this expectation for my spouse and I'm dating, it means that either I'm going to just keep on dating until I find Mr. or Miss Perfect, or I'm going to prop up the person I am dating to be someone that they're not. So if you're dating, I want to ask, Can you fulfill the expectations that you have for your spouse? That's a good test to see if they are quite outlandish or not. And if I carry these expectations for my spouse, it may not be right away. But years down the road into a marriage, when you finally realize that your spouse can't fulfill you, we start wondering, well, did did I fall out of love? Or maybe this person wasn't my soulmate after all. Maybe my soulmate is still out there. And all of a sudden our mind starts wondering, or maybe there's something wrong with the institution of marriage. Can you see how we end up back at the other purpose of marriage? That it represses our freedom. But, really, we've expected marriage to be something it was never meant to be. And like putting purple glue on walls, we create a mess when we misunderstand the purpose of marriage. Okay, so what is the purpose then? We cannot allow our fear, our past pain, or Disney to tell us what the purpose is. So we go to the creator of marriage himself to show us what is the purpose of marriage. See, if God created marriage... Then we look to his word to lay out its highest purpose for us. As its creator, he sets the vision, the the purpose for our marriage, not us, not Disney. As the creator, he's the one who regulates what marriage is. Not to limit our freedom, but that we might enjoy marriage within the purpose that he has for us. And so we realize that when we look at the Bible, we don't have to read very long before we start to see a vision of marriage. It's actually just the second chapter of the Bible. It talks about marriage, but definitely not in the way that our culture does. In just the second chapter, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, we read how the first man and woman dwelled together in a holy, unashamed covenant as if one Flesh. And this gives us a glorious vision for what God intended for marriage of his people fully known, meaning completely exposed to each other, yet fully loved, completely at peace with each other. But the mess, the fallout happened when Adam and Eve were deceived into thinking that God was trying to repress their freedom. You tracking with me? Not love them. So following their own desires, instead of God's word, they disobeyed him. And that is exactly when shame, confusion, fear, anger, insatiable lust entered their world. And you notice that that. If you follow the story of Genesis from chapter 1 to 2, we get the picture of marriage. 3, we see the fallout and how it's broken. Chapter 4. In chapter 4, marriage, their relationship isn't broken, but their world is. What caused everything to become a mess is that their relationship with God became broken. That is where the breakdown happened. And because of their sin, a dark void was left. In their souls. But despite our mess, God did not, God may have removed them from the garden, but He did not take away marriage from them. You ever thought about that? Why? He would remove them from the garden, but He wouldn't take away marriage. Just so that we can procreate? I don't think that's it. Chapter 5. In Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, he's speaking to husbands and wives in a passage that I wish I had time to fully unpack this morning. But that's going to have to wait um, till the day when we're going to do a whole series on it. We are going to try to hit on this a bit more in the upcoming series. But in Ephesians 5.31, Paul quotes what we just read from Genesis 2.24. And he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he he speaks on this and and he's going to give purpose to this when he says in verse 32, this mystery. In other words, this secret purpose of marriage is profound, meaning bigger than your and my happiness alone. And he says, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Wait, what? <laughs> Disney never tells me that. <laughs> well, what does that even mean? Marriage refers to Christ in the church. Well, what Paul is laying out here, and again, if I had time to unpack all of Ephesians 5, I could more fully show you. But he lays out a two-fold purpose for marriage. Number one, he's saying that, number one, the purpose of marriage is to be a living illustration of the relationship he wants with us and made possible through Christ. You know, what's interesting to me is that even in our secular society, we still love the idea of marriage. We love it. Why? Because there's something in each human being that desires to be fully known and fully loved by God. The problem is, is we often assume that we'll find that in another human being in that marriage relationship. When actually God says, see, when you you see a man and a woman unite their whole lives together in a lifelong promise of love and commitment, he says, this is meant to illustrate for you the kind of relationship of love and unity that I died to bring about between you and me. That despite our selfishness, and despite our failure to love him, God loved us still. And he loved us to the point of becoming one of us. And then dying on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. Thus to remove the barrier, the barrier of guilt and shame between us and God. And then he invites us, not forces us, invites us to surrender over our sin-stained heart to him that we might receive a heart as white as snow, united with Christ in his love forever. It's the message, the good news of Jesus is that he is the one who fully completes us. He is the one who fills that void That marriage, nor our spouse, can save us or fill the void. But it is meant to be a living illustration for us. When Christ is at the middle of a marriage, it's meant to be a picture for us of the intimacy that is possible. Even greater intimacy that is possible in a relationship with Jesus. So it's a living illustration. But second... Paul goes on to say that marriage is also one of the ways by which God forms us to love like Jesus. Earlier in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ does the church. Love wife as Christ does. That's a pretty tall order. But you see, what Paul is saying is that The way that Christ loves you, you are to mirror, reflect that, image that to your spouse. And see, this is when the Bible gets brutally honest about marriage. Because marriage sounds blissful. But when you commit your life to someone, and then you see how they go through mood swings, and they make bad financial decisions, and they let their body go, and they stop listening to you, (laughs) i love marriage right when all of a sudden the feelings of the chase and the fairy tale aren't there and the other person isn't doing it for me anymore and you see oh i made a promise to this person that is the point when we say i need to lean into the love of jesus The marriage is wonderful and beautiful, but sometimes the only way that you and I are going to get through certain seasons in a marriage is by getting to know the love of Jesus for us, that we might then show that sacrificial love to our spouses just as he loves us. It's a transforming institution. So according to Scripture, the purpose of marriage is to be a picture of the relationship Christ wants with us. But it's also one of the ways He forms us to be like Him. But what does that now mean for our dating and our marriage relationships today? You know, if our marriages, or if in some case, in some of the future marriages, are to fulfill God's purpose for it, where do we even start? Well, the transforming love of Jesus is the key that unlocks God's purpose for our marriages. Like I said, marriage points to the God of love who saves us. And then at the same time, God uses it as one of the ways he forms us to be like him. So I just want to give what I call three just practical outworkings of what that means for our relationships. Number one, we cannot give Jesus' love to our spouse if we don't know it for ourselves. So many marriages want to work. The couple wants to make it work, but they're trying desperately in their own human love to figure out how to love the other person. Or I've seen a lot of marriages where you have one spouse just dragging the other one along. Come on, let's do this. And please hear me. I'm not speaking to your spouse right now or your boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm speaking to you. I'm speaking to me. Men, I especially want to challenge you here. I especially want to challenge you. Are you growing in your faith? For some reason, and I don't know why, I've seen more examples of husbands renting their wives' faith than vice versa. But I just want to say, (laughs) are you pursuing all that God has for you? If not, it's time to step up. It's time to get plugged in. It's time to find some other men. There are many in this church who want to grow and are trying to grow and get honest about the things that are going on in your life. Seek Jesus together. And let me just add as a side benefit, there's nothing more attractive to a godly woman than a man who's seeking Jesus. Women, can I get an amen on that? All right, thank you. Got Got a little support there. But, so you you and I, we cannot give what we do not know. But second, please understand that loving our spouse is something we learn to do. It's not something that's just going to come natural to us. Again, our society promotes this bogus idea that once you find your soulmate, loving is going to be so easy. It's going to be all downhill from there. But the truth is exactly the opposite. You know, Shelby and I have been married for 11 and a half years. Before we were married, we dated for four years. Before we dated, oh wait, before we got married, we were dated for four years. Before we dated, we were friends for three years. She and I, like we knew each other. She and I come from stable homes, who loved us well, supported us. If you looked at our marriage and you say, if love is going to be easy for anybody, it's going to be easy for them. But marriage instead, (laughs) it exposed what a selfish, entitled, control freak I am. Surprise, I'm a sinner, right? And nothing exposes that like living with somebody all the time and sharing everything with them, right? But it certainly was no surprise to God who sacrificially gave himself for me to forgive me. Because he knew that it's not natural and that he was going to teach me what it means to die to myself in order to love my wife. Die to my own desires. So when we go into marriage, when we look at our marriage, instead of expecting a smooth ride, we should expect to grow, expect to change, and expect our spouse to do the same. And this is why marriage is so amazing. Because right from the very beginning, you're not saying, well, if you do it for me, I'll stick it out. You're saying from the very beginning, no matter how you and I grow and change, no matter whether we go through the peaks and the valleys and sickness and in health, when it's good and when it's not, when you look good and when you don't, like, I will love you. And I will learn to love with you. Because I know my heart. And I also know who my God is. Loving your spouse is something we learn to do it's not something we fall in and fall out of it's something we lean into jesus as he teaches us over life how to do that and last some of you are wondering kirk when is this going to get romantic last none of us can have a healthy marriage without a strong friendship with your spouse we've often thought that you know i'll discover let me me put that back for a second (laughs) ultimately a marriage if we understand that the purpose of God of marriage is that we might be shaped together to be all that God has designed us to be then we really discover the purpose of marriage as we walk side by side looking at Jesus and walking toward him together we don't often discover the purpose of marriage just by googling in each other's eyes all the time but as we gaze on Christ together. And as we gaze on Christ together, you know what I've noticed is that God begins to show you who He's designed your spouse to be. And you get to pray into that. And you get to encourage that. And you get to build that up. And you get to find ways to say, hey, let's grow together. Hey, I'm seeking Jesus. Hey, let, let, let's do this thing side by side through the peaks and the valleys as two people who are trying, who are growing to be rooted in Jesus and interwoven in His love. We'd find the purpose, ultimately, as we learn to be friends. Do you realize you're on the same team with your spouse? You're on the same team. And, do, and if those who are dating, before you start looking at the outside of somebody, start by asking, is this person the kind of person who I can be best friends with for the rest of my life? If you're married, how can you begin to build your friendship? How can you continue to build your friendship with your spouse? Some of you are like, well, I'm going to watch a Valentine movie tonight. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But really, the transforming love of Jesus is the key that unlocks God's great purpose for our marriages. Now, as I wrap this up, I'm sure you have many more questions. About marriage, about sex, about all of these types of things that I wish I had time to get to today. I just want to say here at the end, please, if you have other questions, sometimes these are better addressed in a discussion anyway. Reach out to me. Reach out to Pastor David, Pastor Matt, one of the elders, right? Like find somebody, but don't hold these things in silence. But let's let's talk them through. As a church, we're going to continue to find ways to hit on this topic, you know, throughout the life of our church. But as we wrap this up, you know, we began this message talking about how the Bible begins. But I want to end talking about how the Bible ends. And one of the most beautiful things about Scripture is the Bible not only begins with marriage, but it ends with one. But the one that ends with is God's people, you and me, his church called the bride and Christ the groom. And he says that one day we will be gathered toward something called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. That all of God's promises to make the world right. All of God's promises that we will experience a life without pain, existence without pain. All of that will be met when we are united finally and forever with Christ. That there's coming a day, the Marriage Supper of the Lamb, that will be the final consummation of God's grand redemption story. And in that day... All our loneliness and all of our fear and death itself will be passed away as we dwell with our Savior forever. In that day, all of our sin will be a thing of the past. In that day, all of our crying and all of the the trauma from those who failed to love us as we should have been loved will pass away as we bask in the beauty of our God's glory. In that day. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will find the fulfillment for which our souls crave. And today, as we turn to celebrate the Lord's Supper, realizing that this is just a foretaste of that day to come. When we look at the Lord's Supper with our physical senses, we may not think it's much. But when we look at it through the eyes of faith, we see the love of our God that was willing to suffer in order to bring us into relationship with himself. When we look at this through the eyes of faith, we don't just see what's in front of us, we see what's to come. When we look at this through the eyes of faith, we don't just see a tradition, we see what it means that we are his. So now we're going to celebrate communion together as his people bought in his suffering, given new life, In his resurrection. We pray with me and then we're gonna take communion together. Father, man, this wasn't much time. There's so much more that I wish I could say, and I know so much more that you're going to say to each of us in our hearts and our minds. I pray that your spirit would, would, would continue to speak into each of our lives individually, so many experiences, so many different types of marriages, so much pain that some marriages have caused, so much excitement and giddiness over others. Lord, I pray that you will take your word, but that you'll bring it all together for us as we bask in your glory and as we receive the love that you have for us yet again, the kind of love that's greater than anything this world has ever offered us, is willing to die, suffer, that we might be yours. So Lord, as we prepare to take communion, if there's anything that we need to confess to you, if there's any unforgiveness or bitterness we harbor in our heart toward anyone else, God, I pray that we would confess that, that we might receive this with a full heart of gratitude. Take a moment just to be silent right now and let the Lord speak to your heart and confess anything that might be between you and him.